The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Ren Collier. Tickets available at strangerealitiesconference.com. It's going to be amazing. Well, here we are. We've, uh, we've, been, we've been having a whole bunch of fun. <laughs> For the Already. last thirty minutes, no one will ever hear. Like <laughs> top secret, yeah, top top secret, top secret for only um, high initiates of Illuminism. Yes, yes, and the reason we say that is because we've got like a whole crew here tonight. Uh, Alan Greenfield is here with us. How do you do? Good. We're glad that you're okay. We're glad that, that you're, you're well. well. Well, the angel of death came to me in the third hospital I was in, and it said, it's going to be you or Jim Wasserman. And I thought for a few minutes, and I said, take that MOFO, okay? So he did. I ate. He was my mortal enemy. I don't know if he still is, you know. I doubt that he goes to the same place. Well... We're glad that uh, we're glad that you're still here, Alan. Yes, sir. <laughs> I can now freely and in public because America has this weird law that if you're dead, there you have no rights. So I know it's weird how that works. A few months ago, I could have said Jim Wasserman is a fascist, and I would have gotten sued by his uh, fraternal order of antiquated notions. But now that he's really dead. I could say I took a picture of him once with the devil, and he's definitely a fascist because the devil was scared of him. He's gone, but his memory lingers on. Uh, my my friend uh, 
Craig Heimbicker, uh, author of Blood on the Altar and other more sane books, uh, no relation, so to speak. Um, uh, he had uh, uh, Jim Wasterman and I as the head of the international occult conspiracy to take over the world. How's that going, by the way? Well, I wrote him and I said, look, Wasserman and I can't stand to be in the same room together, much less in the conspiracy to rule the world. And I did convince him that although a shabby organization, the O-H-T-R-O, nevertheless, they couldn't lead a, a Boy Scout demonstration on a burlesque house. They're just not, they're not there, you know, and... They're in declining health in a way that I never was. So, uh, actually, Craig got convinced. And in his subsequent book, which was mostly on Freemasonry, uh, what was it called? It was a really good book about the history of secret societies, so-called. Uh, he said, um, free Illuminism is the coming thing in occult circles because you don't have to pay anything or attend all of those uh, goddamn meetings. And I thought, yeah, that, that's it. And uh, we've got Stephanie Quick. Hello. Hello, Stephanie. So how you guys doing? Actually, what am I saying? See, this is, I don't know why I'm so discombobulated today, but um, probably listening to all this uh, Alan weaving various spells. We've been serenaded several times as well during all of this. Um, talking behind the scenes, but uh, yeah, so I just had a very discombobulated day. I had a premonition of a poor plant in my front yard that I've been trying to keep alive, but got finally assassinated after multiple uh, attempts by our gardener oh, yesterday. No. <laughs> this cute little plant. Oh, well, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. So anyway, as I've uh, taken away, it seems like uh, Adam, you and Serfriel are doing pretty well. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing great. Um, things, things are going well. And uh We've got Olaf Phillips. Greetings and salutations. How's it going? It's going okay. I am not quite as discombobulated, but I was a tad discombobulated uh, to go along with the theme. But yes, doing well. Good, good. And the reason that, uh, well, we've got all three of you, all three of you here. Um, well, Olaf, um, you're now publishing Alan's books, as we talked about before. Yes, that's and, absolutely correct. Uh, Stephanie, you know, you've been on a lot of shows with Alan, and uh, you kind of got included in on the email exchange, and it was like, eh, why don't you just join us? So, uh, but also, Alan is going to be with us at Strange Realities uh, this year in Nashville in 2021. And Olaf, you're actually going to be hanging out with us too. So you're going to absolutely be hanging around. You're not going to be speaking, but you're going to be. I guess getting Alan where he needs to be and hanging out with us. Yes, I'll be hanging out with you and I'll be gophering for uh for the Grandmaster Alan Greenfield. Yes, yes. I'm not all that grand, but <laughs> and master? No, no, no. We don't have masters in free illumination. No masters in stinking free illumination. I remember. We have facilitators. Grand, I'll be I'll be assisting the grand facilitator, Alan Greenfield. Yes. You'll be facilitating. You'll be facilitating for the grand facilitator. Yes, I'll, I'll be some facilitating for the for this for the grand facilitator. I'll just do some sub facilitating. Facilitate section, <laughs> I guess. Huh? 
I'll tell you a secret about conferences in person that will be lost if they are always coveted out online. Uh, over the many decades that I have participated in Outre conferences, I have rarely heard any speakers or been in the room while they were speaking. All the really good stuff happens out in the hall or at room parties. Mm -hmm. That's true of everything that I've ever done from science fiction to UFOs to, to uh, the occult. Uh, uh, I, the only speech I ever attended in the five years I was the AES speaker at the OT uh, back in the days when I was one of their fair-haired boys and not the vicious evil Alan Greenfield. Uh, I, the only talk I ever attended was my own. The rest of the time I was having absinthe parties with all of the wrong people. I mean, right people, right people, and all of the dissenters and the occasional grandmaster. And, uh, you know, it was like that. That's true, though. You know, the good stuff always happens in the hallways, at the bar, in the restaurant, in, you know, in a room party. That's where you really discuss things and figure stuff out. I That's once had a, 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 a near fist fight with Charlie Hickson at a bar at a convention that I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, it was one that was put on by uh, MUFON and APRO, now gone, and NICAP, now gone. And Dr. Heineck, well, he's gone too, but... Well, MUFON will be gone soon, I think. Well, um, <laughs> probably not going. because it, it... Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but there's mm -hmm. some of their local branches are not like that. I mean, no. uh, uh, used to be, but when they made uh, the late, great master, Jim Mosley, their state director in Florida... They can't be all bad, you know, even if they have those Klansmen or whatever they are out west where Ruben, all things are possible. Ruben Uriarte, who runs the NorCal MUFON, MUFON mm -hmm. he's great. He's written some amazing books with Noe Torres in there. No, it's, you know, they've got a good operation. It's just MUFON in general. It's, I, have a, I have a strong urging dislike of MUFON as a former member. Is it uh, is it John Venture you like running for governor of Pennsylvania or something? Didn't I see something like that? I don't know. Yeah, I think he's running. He's running for the governor of Pennsylvania on the white people's ticket, or <laughs> yeah, something like that, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> probably. Go white people, go back to you know, Europe and enjoy. I don't know. For me, like for me, it really it really started when I found out, you know, how they treat the the states. Like you have to pay your dues twice because they don't give any money to the states you know they just pocket it all and then there was the whole thing with like the star team and robert bigelow and the fact mm -hmm. that even as an, an inactive member they sold my contact information thankfully outdated to bigelow aerospace which handed it off to the dod you know i didn't really appreciate that well yeah. you should use the immortal words i'll sue <laughs> and it was too late. Take, well, no, no, it's not too late because they can take things back. You see, they can say, "Oh, we terribly sorry. It was just a, a fluke. Uh, one of our uh, uh, white supremacist members 
was afraid yeah. the Jews would replace us. So we wanted to bring in some Scandinavian people. Uh, <laughs> and nice. know that they, all the real Scandinavian people are in Minnesota. So they're, there's That's nothing true. but Laplanders and they're not uh, happy with uh, Minnesota. You know, you know, my boss, one of the companies I worked for, my boss was Swedish. And he saw my name and he says, oh, are you Swedish? I said, yeah. And he was like, I don't know, five foot six. And I'm six, three and a half. And, and I was like, you know, I have a question for you. He goes, okay. I said, you know, I went to Sweden. You know, I went to Stockholm and around Sweden. And I said, why, why was everybody short? And he said, well, all, the, all the, the larger people that you would associate with Sweden, you know, they were the lumberjacks and the, and the carpenters and, you know, the tradespeople, you know, they all left and went to Minnesota. So everybody left behind was the people living in the cities and they tended to be smaller, like shorter, you know, I thought that was fascinating, but apparently in Sweden, that's what they teach you in school is that all the, all the big Swedish people like me, we all left. They lost their lumberjacks. Yeah, they did actually quite literally. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is if you go to Sweden, like I drove through Sweden, right. If you go through Sweden, like it looks exactly like Minnesota. It's like a carbon copy. You can't tell the difference. Olive, you're a lumberjack and you're okay. I am. I am a, I am a lumberjack, yes. I've got my plaid on. Well, Olive, you know that as far as uh, places on earth, mimicking places that uh, the people have immigrated to, um, we have, of course, here in California, we have French Gulch and right. that area of the gold country, which is very similar <laughs> to the uh, part of France uh, that it comes from, which is a very mountainous, rocky, I forget the exact part. But then also uh, Mendocino has that right. real, uh, looks just like Maine. That's where they uh, shot Murder, She Wrote there because it's supposed to be a cute, small New England town, which is what oh, it they looks shot like. It in, they shot that in Mendocino? I did not know that. Yeah, the outside shots. Oh, it has hilarious. a great Victoriana from the time of around, yeah. again, the gold rush and stuff. And then they have right, these very right. dramatic sheer cliffs yep. on the, the side of the ocean. So it's very much like a lot of like a main coastline or something like that. So, yeah. Not, not very occulty, but fascinating. <laughs> we should yeah, talk well, about that. You know, <laughs> uh, I found out belatedly that... Uh, uh, Pet Cemetery 2, I think it was, uh, was the externals for the actual Pet Cemetery was Mount Arabia. Oh, there really? are parts of Mount Arabia, not, not the part that we use for uh, magical workings, but uh, parts of it that really look weird. I mean, well, the whole place is kind of weird. So that's where they uh, shot the externals for that movie. And you know, I'm not going to really mention that my son Alex has a new movie coming out that is a, a major motion picture, uh, and it's called Lullaby, and it's very occult, and you should see it whenever, whenever it comes out. It was oh, cool. It's uh, in post production, so should be soon. Well, Alan, I, I wanted to ask you uh, about Tim Beckley. You know he his recent passing and decided to maybe get some like your recollections of him. And, you know, the last year I was trying to get both of you guys on and had uh, Brent Rains. So you, you missed us by just a little bit, but you know, um, that's when I, I was getting you, sick, I think. And yeah. I think that you and he, I mean, you, he were like really great friends and I just thought, you know, you'd talk a little bit about your relationship with him. Tim was my oldest friend. 
in both senses of the word. Um, we, we go back to the early 1960s, and there is a vanishing group of people, Gene Steinberg and Dave Halpern and Tim Beckley and Rick Hilberg and myself, that uh, we were part of what was then known as the teen ufology movement. And we had many wonderful adventures together, mostly after midnight in Central Park in New York. So um, uh, there was that night where we were flipping switchblades and singing Cool Cool from West Side Story. But I, I did Tim's program any number of times and happily I got just before I... Uh, uh, took ill. Um, <clears throat> that sounds like I'm mentally. This was a physical ailment, and I'm back. But uh, uh, Beckley did a Christmas program on Christmas Eve, and he asked me to be on. So I said, only if I can sing Silent Night at the, at the closing of the program. And everything else I did on the program was the usual Alan Greenfield BS. So it was, you know, whoa, the aliens are coming up from under my bed right now. But uh, I did a absolutely straight version of Silent Night, which I learned in public school, which uh, in the South uh, hung in there with all kinds of uh, New Testament-y things. But I was glad to be able to do that because Tim, for all of his uh, hype and Mr. UFO and Mr. Creepo, mm -hmm. was an absolutely sincere person and a bit like Andy Warhol, who he also knew. Um, he was absolutely straight up at, at core. I only know two people like that that were into, you know, flamboyance. Uh, the other one was Gray Barker, but, uh, but really were quite devout in their personal lives. And Tim was a great person. I was... Totally shocked. Uh, I lost several. One was one of our local steadfast, uh, uh, Tao Aron, who I had consecrated, who moved to Asheville and died. He was like 35. Tim was had a bad ticker, so it shouldn't have been a surprise. But after knowing him for 60 some odd years, yeah. And under the circumstances that I was in, just you know, a few days before and getting that kind of news. It was really bad. We lost another person who uh, uh, Palamas performed a wedding uh, of this gentleman and his uh, uh, then future wife. And uh, I just heard from Palamas that he dropped dead. He was probably in his early 40s. So it's not been it's been the season of the witch for me. Tim was uh, he will be missed even by the people who tended to think that he was uh, exploitative of the UFO stuff. I think his last book was uh, Alien Lives Matter. I thought the title was in very, very poor taste. But, uh, uh, yeah. you know, other than that, he was very funny and uh, very generous to everyone who knew him. And people who didn't know him were the ones who were... Uh, saying bad, bad things about it. He definitely really was, um, I think, one of the greats of the field. I mean, I, I respect the hell out of him. And I, I'm glad that I got to talk to him the couple of times that I did. Yeah. It, it, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of when the first time we met in the flesh was. It wasn't at the first National UFO Conference. That was 
1964. That's where I met Mosley and the Cleveland crowd, as they were known. So you would have been real young then, Alan, right? You would have been like, what, 18 at that time? I was a lot younger than 18. But, uh, oh, really? But we were teen ufologists, and the founders, wow. along with the late Alan Manick, who was not a teenager, uh, of the National UFO Conference, the longest-running convention of the UFO variety. I think we were able to run that for 60 years, uh, beginning in 1964. Yeah, well, it couldn't be 60. It would be more like 55, you know. So then uh, when Mosley retired from being the permanent chairman, as that was known, he turned it over to some outfit in L.A. And it ran a couple of years under some other name. And uh, as far as I know, has ceased to exist. But all of these non-giant rock type conventions that are sort of UFO based, uh, have their origin in the uh, uh, National UFO Conference. And uh, when we had our reunion, like three or four years ago, Beckley was there, uh, Bob Easley was there, they're both gone. Um, so Rick Hilberg said recently to me the, that... Um, the people at our table are diminishing quickly. So I said, well, we've still got contributions to make, as Robert Frost put it, for I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, to which I say, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Wow. We weren't first generation, by the way. We were second generation ufology. The first generation people were Mosley and Barker and Major Kehoe and Richard Hall and other fascists. And uh, uh, not Jim. Jim was not. And Gray was certainly. Yeah, thank you for reiterating that Jim Mosley was not a fascist. I appreciate it. No, his father was, though. His father yeah. was a genuine uh, Army general who retired to Atlanta and uh, uh, with his mistress of that period. And uh, he was part of Gerald L.K. Smith's anti-Semitic network. Jim didn't have an anti-Semitic bone in his body. And we were very good friends and neighbors for a while in Key West. Down in the Keys, we would hang out at uh, Captain Tony's bar and uh, him and uh, me and uh, Lacey Rainbow and uh, uh, the guy from Omni Magazine, the science editor there, we were hanging out in the real uh, bar that was uh, not the one on Duval Street that is called uh, Hemingway's Bar, but uh, the one that was actually where Hemingway hung out before my time. Uh, mm -hmm. Not totally before my time. I mean, you know, I was but a kid when he blew his brains out. Yeah, that would have been like the early 1960s, I think, right? Yeah, it was the early 1960s, and right. I mean, I was in Miami in early 1960s, but I was just a, a punk kid. Well, thanks for that. We wanted to give you a chance to uh, you know, give him a little bit of a memorial on here because we talked about it before but you know you guys were actually friends so yeah thanks for we were that. very close friends and uh, 
I think we will be uh, feeling the lack of his presence in years to come because he brought a book out once a month and you may have hated what he did or you may have loved what he did. And some would say it was everything that wasn't nailed down under copyright, which there's some truth in that. But nevertheless, he provided what in an earlier time, Ray Palmer and Dick Shaver also, I knew them, though I was of the younger and they were of the very older generation, um, um, provided that mystique that makes the work in all of these different areas, whether it's cryptozoology or the occult or, or ufology or you name it, mediumship, uh, trans channeling, all of that, he gave it that air of mystery that is actually there when you do field work. But up until uh, the Newkirks and the Hellier thing, I don't think anybody was getting that mystique. And, uh, you know, in any kind of public framework. You only got it if you went out and did the field work. And something tells me that my roller will not take me to uh, Brown Mountain uh, again. So it's very important that that notion that if you go out and follow the synchronicities, you get there. And one of the times I was there was with Tim Beckley, the time that... Uh, the man in black showed up at my hotel, a motel room door out of nowhere and telling me that the primary witness there, Ralph Lale, was a moonshiner. He was a moonshiner. You don't want to. Well, that was really, really strange since nobody knew I was there other than uh, Mosley and Beckley. And who else was there? Oh, Betty Mosley. She's still alive somewhere out there. So uh, that was, it's one of the few things from that period, the late 60s, early 70s, that I can date exactly because it was, again, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, 1968, because the first astronauts circling the moon were circling the moon. We got back from our late night adventure on uh Grandfather Mountain, which is the oldest and uh, tallest mountain in that area, which overlooks Brown Mountain. So it was an excellent thing. And Mosley was driving, and I never saw Mosley sober ever. Um, so he's driving, and the ice, the road is getting iced over, and I'm on the in the so-called death seat, peering down into the abyss on the right side of the car. <laughs> Take it a little slower, Jim. Take it a little slower. Your daughter's in the car. Take it a little slower. And uh, uh, when we got back, uh, uh, Beckley turned on the TV, and there was an, the astronauts reading from Genesis 1. And I thought my reaction was, oh, my God, they're stuck circling the moon forever, and they're reading the Bible because that's, that's all that's left. But it was actually more a, a NASA, hey, we're not ungodly, unlike uh, um, the Soviet astronauts, because, which was bullshit, by the way. Uh, can I say bullshit? Bullshit. Um, yeah, you can say bullshit. Yeah, Gagarin was the first man in space. Uh, was quoted as saying, I couldn't find God up there, so that proves there isn't a God. Actually, Gagarin was a devout uh, Orthodox Christian, as uh, 
and uh, apparently it was the regime of that time that wanted to push that particular point of view. So I think that's very common in Russia, but you know, I know that it was Christmas Eve, uh, 1968, and we were in Beckley's room and Beckley was talking on the phone to his mother at 3 Cortland Street, New Brunswick, New Jersey. I know all these people's teenage addresses. It's, it won't go away. It's in my head. Um, but um, he was explaining to his mother how cold it was in North Carolina during that period. And I, I couldn't hear her half of the conversation, but she was saying something to the effect, but you're in the warm states. And Beckley said, uh, we're in the warm states, but it's the cold season. And it was bitter cold, cold enough for the icy roads to imperil our lives. There we go. I had many adventures with Beckley. You guys would meet up many, many times at conferences and all kinds of things, like through the years, right? Well, a lot of what we did, yeah, was at the uh, conferences. But a lot of what we did was my annual New Year's Eve visit to New York. And uh, uh, we had many famous people that were in one way or another involved in that uh, Stan Lee. Uh, John Keel showed up after uh, Mosley had been, in those days, long distance calls were not part of your package. They were uh, very expensioso. But Mosley was well-to-do and I had the delusion that I was well-to-do. So we would talk for hours and during that period preceding uh, I guess it was 1966, 67, New Year's Eve. Um, all Jim could talk about was raving about how great this new guy, Keel, was, that he was spellbinding and all that. So he got him to come over to my hotel room, to, which over, always over from the Hilton in Manhattan, always overlooked Times Square. So we didn't have to uh, indulge in, you know, the street, the street violence of that period, but uh, so we could watch the ball come down from afar, and then we would run out in the streets when everybody had left and collect the bagels that had fallen on the ground from the street vendors and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, Keel was good to his uh, rep at that point because he was spellbinding at that time. This is before he did the West Virginia thing, before he turned into Richard Gere, any of that. He, uh, he just had gotten involved and was, uh, I've always said that he was a reporter of the men's magazines of the 50s and early 60s style reporter, which is Saga and uh, Real. And these were not... Uh, not Playboy, they, they didn't have centerfolds or anything, but they did have articles like, I found the island of lost women. Yes. And uh, yes. uh, Keel was a frequent contributor to that genre. And he took that with him to West Virginia. And of course, Mosley and Barker knew he was coming to West Virginia. So, Mr. Keel, this is Indra. <laughs> 
and Keel bought it all. But of course, uh, it doesn't explain everything. There are those people who think, oh, well, it was all mostly in Barker. Uh, no, actually, they didn't have the, lim the black limos chasing Keel out on Long Island. I mean, that would have been a little bit much even for them. So, yeah, there was a lot that added to the weirdness. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it what led me to the point there are no hoaxes in ufology because reality is malleable. And if you get deep enough into the West Virginia, as they say in Italian, Stiklok, you will find that uh, it, real things start to happen, even if it started out as otherwise. There's the famous uh, Wanakew Reservoir from New Jersey uh, flap, which is if you read the, that period of time, it is billed as a famous UFO series of events that many people saw, including the local cops, if that's a reliable source for some of us and not for others. But uh, that started out, according to Gene Steinberg's earlier testimony, which he now has retracted, but I heard it straight from the Gene's mouth. Um, <clears throat> Jim got roaring drunk in his apartment in New York and decided to pull a hoax on some little town. He picked, picked uh, Wanakew uh, out of, I don't know, the phone book or whatever, a map, whatever. So he calls the Wanakew Police Department and says, because he knew New Jersey, that he lived there for many years. There is a flying saucer hovering over the Wanakew Reservoir. And that's where the whole thing started. But the thing is, there were great legitimate sightings by multiple people around the Wanakew Reservoir. So do I think Jim Mosley generated tulpas or something? Uh, in a sense, yeah. Uh, the, the, these, these folks, Jim and Gray and even George Adamski, were so much involved in uh, more so uh, – George Hunt Williamson than Adamski, but uh, so much into the gestalt of high weirdness of Twilight Zone for real that they produced Twilight Zone for real. And that is that is quite something. It says a great deal about the nature of reality. Yeah, I agree. Brain. Yeah. yeah. Olaf, I wanted to ask you what you're doing right now with Alan, uh, you know, printing out the books but also kind of this has been interesting journey for you with the secret cipher and all that and kind of what you what's the latest uh for you on that we had you talking about that just uh God, it was last year so it's been probably, probably about a year since we we really spoke well you know it's it's a fun story you know i was always a fan of the secret cipher the ufo knots or ufo knots or however your particular uh, pronunciation of it. And it's I had Crowley, a, not Crowley, and it's euphonauts, not UFO. <laughs> Alan and I have an, a, a, a long-running uh, uh, discussion about my misuse of Crowley's name. Um, but no, they're so not I, the only I, one. The New Kirks do that too, and they're <laughs> super um, hip. So you're yeah. super hip too. Apparently, um, so I knew that after Illuminate Press uh, had disappeared, that the book had gone out of out of print. And so I approached Alan. I said, hey, I'm a fan. You know, I, I, uh, I like your stuff. I think it needs to be printed. And so, you know, he graciously uh, gave me permission to do it. And so I did. 
And for many years, you know, I just printed it out of the sheer love of it um, until one day it got super popular and we were trying to figure out why. And then we found out why. But what really um, kind of took off from that point that once I had a, a synchro storm is probably the best way I can describe it um, around Hellier. And I, um, once that started, I got on the train and once you're on the train, you can't get off the train. And so, um, you know, at that point I became far, far more invested in it, uh, from a philosophical point of view. I also had some changes in my life that allowed me the freedom to explore these topics where I hadn't before. Um, and so I started to, to really dive into it and deep and uh the synchronicities kept coming and i kept going back to alan and saying look i'm having you know i found balloons like i i found a happy birthday balloon in the middle of the forest on the side of a mountain like it it totally shouldn't have been there and i didn't know who else to call and so i called alan i said look I'm, i'm experiencing these things and he's like you've got to follow the synchronicities so i started to follow this follow the synchronicities and you know, at this point I'm, <clears throat> I'm in a super deep, um, I get them all the time. In fact, over the last couple of days, 93 has been chasing me, um, big time. So I figure I'm on the right trajectory cause I'm seeing the signs. Um, but you know, Alan was gracious enough to, to start to explain to me the philosophical parts of it and, and to start to really kind of do a brain dump on, on how these things work and and what to do. And, you know, I, I started to embrace the secret cipher far more and really learn how it functioned. And, and, you know, um, in the meantime, some of these books, they kept popping up and, you know, in a very synchronistic way. And I would go to Alan, I said, well, you know what, this book is, uh, is really out of print. I mean, it's hard to find, you know, what do you think? And he's like, if you can find it, we'll publish it. In fact, the um, it, we were having a conversation one night. We actually talk uh, quite routinely about not just the cult stuff and freeing illuminism and magic and, and that kind of thing, but we t- talk about things in general. And uh, one night he told me, he said, you know, back in the day, you know, I published, I don't, he'll correct me. I'm sure I like, screwed something up. Not published. I'm sorry. Printed. He printed this. That's true. He printed this book back in the day and it was, you know, he only printed a few of them and it was really hard. Copies. 93 copies. And he was, he was, you know, he's like, I'm like, well, well, we should print that. You know, we should put it out there because of the subject matter and, and the high, high weirdness of it. I wanted to read it. You know, it's, I read this stuff. It's not just, I print it, I publish it, I read it, you know? And so I'm fascinated by it and I, and I'm trying to, um, trying to learn so that I can become more powerful, um, you know, stronger, uh, in that world. And so he said, well, I'll tell you what, if you can find a copy, you know, you can publish it. I said, okay. And so I scoured and scoured and scoured. I tried to buy it. Like I couldn't even buy it, you know, and eventually, um, it's called, uh, oh, well, I'll let Alan tell you about the book, but, but I eventually found it uh, on a website where somebody had gotten one of the 93 copies and scanned it in. And from that, I was able to reconstruct the book. And um, so, wait a minute. There's there were there were ninety three copies. Yeah, there were ninety three copies. Of course, right. and, and delivered I was, to and high delivered. initiates. I didn't sell it. 
It was mm. free of charge, and I hand-delivered all 93 copies. Well, 91. One was to, to my mother, and one was my own copy. So long lost, I must say. What did your mother think, Alan? <laughs> uh, my mother was used to my, my deal, and she was, let me put it this way. My mother read every smutty novel, if it said unexpurgated, and of course, she left them lying around. So I read Henry Miller when I was like 10, Story of O when I was 12, Story of O again when I was 14, 15, 16. It was my <laughs> kind of town, Chicago. Okay. Um, and uh, so she was fine with all this stuff. My father was clueless about it, but he was supportive. I really was fortunate. I was blessed with parents who were uh, very tolerant of my uh, eccentricities. And uh, interest. uh, Eccentricities are uh, (laughs) my interest. But, uh, I mean, it goes back to as far as I can think. I have this vivid memory of my father reading the headline from a newspaper. Again, this is one I know the date of. It was approximate date. It was July 1952. We were in Miami, and my father said, you know, these flying saucers have been seen over the Pentagon and over the White House. And such antennas as my six-year-old, five-year-old, had perked up and I went, tell me about it, daddy. Because that was, I was, uh, that rang a chime with me that far back. So Mm -hmm. I I guess I was, maybe it was that baby stroller I fell out of. (laughs) I don't remember that, but my mother said I fell out of a baby stroller and hit my head. So, so, so anyway, so, you know, we've been tracking, we've been the, the grail within is, is the book and it was very hard to find it. And I synchronistically stumbled across it. I took a long time for me to reconstruct it and I was able to publish it. And then we've been going through and finding other books that, that uh, Alan has written and trying to get those out as well. Um, we, I'm currently working on a book called Saucers and Saucerers. Um, editing it and getting it put together. And that's a, very much a book about everything that Alan just kind of talked about. You know, it's about back in the golden age, you know, and what he was doing. And it talks about the the uh, Ohio, you know, group and, or the Cincinnati group and, and it, the various people. And we're, I'm working with Rick Helberg, who, you know, Alan was talking about to get more photos so we can put a lot of photos in there. And it, it talks about that kind of golden age and, you know, we just reprinted uh, the complete right of Memphis, and uh, I'm working on, um, you know, the his book uh, about the um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. Uh, we're putting that back out. Good, because I'm having a hard time finding that. Yeah, we're we're. It I'm was in the published by percent. a Swedish publishing house that no longer exists. Uh, Looking Glass was that what they're called? Yeah, Looking Glass. Yeah, and uh, so I, I don't know how, how many were in print, but it was gobbled up long, long ago. So you, the only way to get it before Olive got a hold of it was... Uh, pay a lot of money. Yeah, pay a lot of money <laughs> that I don't get any royalties on. And uh, no. unlike some of the people that I've worked with, uh, Olive is religious about paying royalties. And uh, Absolutely. I must say, since Hellier... Uh, 
we've done very well. He's done very well for him. I've done very well for me, but also Absolutely. gratifying to have stuff that has been in the shadows out in, you know, mm-hmm. as I put it, I used to be almost obscure. Now I'm almost famous. You know, and, and it's exciting, you know, once it, it was the shocking first episode of Hellier where I saw the secret cipher of the Euphonauts on the, on my TV. And I was like, Oh my God, I published that book, but you know, it, it's been very gratifying to me too, you know, with Alan, you know, kind of being able to jer- go on that journey with him because now people really do use it. I mean, we, we have a web version of the secret cipher that you can use very easily, you know, <clears throat> and people use it and you know i've i've taught people how to use it and i've i've used it for people i've tried to push the envelope of what you can do with it you know there have been times where i've i've been experimenting with it and i went back to alan i said hey i got it to do this and alan's like oh i didn't know it could do that you know and in fact um it led to a discovery that i made of another cipher um that that exists um, it was actually, I used the secret cipher structure to find another cipher. And then I confirmed the existence of the other cipher using the secret cipher, which you really shouldn't be able to do. That I was able to get the secret cipher to put out um, information about this other cipher that I found. And um, that, that was crazy. And eventually... You know, it, it it gave me some very interesting insights. So now, you know, I'm I'm working with another cipher as well as a secret cipher, the NAC cipher. So, you know, it's um, the whole thing has been a, a a joyous journey for me, and I'm lucky enough that Alan helps me and teaches me and shows me how to do things. And you know, I try to try to honor him, you know, by printing the stuff and making sure it gets out there and. You know, and yes, paying my my royalties on time and religiously, as he said. <laughs> I guess that uh, we're gonna see something interesting at the uh, Strange Realities Conference, right, Olaf? You were telling me. Yeah. Um, well, I I don't know, Alan. You can talk about that. <laughs> uh, they'll they'll see me with a roller, with you standing behind me in case I fall down. Is that what you meant? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> no, I think I think I, I had this brainstorm. I, I saw the list of speakers. Fabulous list, by the way. Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, it occurred, well, Stephanie's speaking at this thing. I'm speaking at this thing. We And I have... She, she did last year. Well, it shows her on the list of speakers. Anyway, she... Uh, we did a a program or two on sexual magic, which was not lurid or anything. It was, and th- this book fills a uh, need in, in that in that field because it's personal. First half is theoretical. The second half are my own experiences, and I, I uh, no pun intended, lay them out graphically. There are even some photos that go along with it that uh, are. In there. Yes, I was I was reading a couple of the passages earlier. Yeah, uh, Olaf was very taken with the book. He said, "Well, we got to publish this. We got to." Well, it's not meant for public. It's got to be out there. 
people will read it. Uh, people are exhausted with all of the theoretical accounts of well, magic. Yes, they're exhausted with that, but this... It's important. It's truly important. You know, when I read it, you know, I, it was more like he dared me to find it. And when I found it and I read it, I said, oh, my God, you know, this this illuminates the way that, that sexual magic works and in a way that no book I've ever read on it did. It explained it, not only the psychology of it, and the technique of it, but, but the actual functioning of it. And I just I, that's why I had to I told him it had to be out there. There's one observation. I haven't even uh, looked at this book in over a decade because when it was printed, it was I got a call from the uh, U.S. Grandmaster of that club I used to be a part of saying, oh, thank you. Thank you for this book. Well, he didn't talk like this. Thank you for the book. I now understand <clears throat> the inner secret of sexual magic much better than I did before. And I was flattered, but I thought and didn't say, what's wrong with this picture? This is one of the two people in the first 10 years, the other being his wife, uh, of the existence of uh, the, the reign of Hymenaeus uh, III, whatever he is, uh, and that have made it to the ultimate degree in that particular organization, which is the secrets of sexual magic. And the guy who holds that is telling me, a mid-level initiate, thank you for the book that I handed him, uh, uh, disclosing my own experiences with that. And I thought, I should ask him to promote me to ninth degree, just skip over like they did with all the other people that they had at that time. And uh, I was really flattered by that, but I knew that that was the case because it isn't just their secret. It's the secret of P.B. Randolph's uh, Brotherhood of Eulis, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, of which I, uh, I am a legitimate claimant to in that the family of the last frontal chief gave me permission to carry on that work and i do um i the only other book that talks about personal experience in any kind of candid way not counting crowley's uh drug-induced rants back in the day um was uh, lewis culling uh who wrote this little book that almost nobody in the occult cares for but i read it and i went, Wow, this guy actually talks about what went on with him. Quaint though it is, it nevertheless uh, tells it the way he experienced it, not the way that theoretically it can be experienced. And uh, so I, I wrote this basically as a tribute to Culling. I think it was originally even dedicated to him, long deceased, I believe, as far as I know. And uh, I wanted to... Uh, talk about the theoretical stuff, mainly arguing that it isn't a secret. Uh, but I wanted to talk about what I had experienced myself. And as I, as I put it, one, the only thing that has stuck out in my mind uh, that has stuck with me, I said, there was a 20-year period, approximately, a golden era when sexuality without consequences was possible between the pill and AIDS. Uh, that's 1960 to 
80 sometime. And, yeah, early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. And during that period, it was possible to do almost anything in experimentation and not get burned by it or not wind up dead because of it. Uh, before that, it was not possible. The principal barrier was pregnancy. After that, it was AIDS. And by the time, uh, by the time the uh, uh, air had cleared, I think people were more conservative about sexuality, and uh, maybe rightly so. But they were they were missing what the experience of that golden era uh, was, and perhaps could have continued to be. It wasn't just AIDS. It was AIDS and Ronald Reagan. You're giving me a flashback, Alan. It's not fun. <laughs> well, when you get to be my age, it's a lot of stories from back then, then, then. No, it was funny what you were talking about with the whole kind of more, much more conservative attitude uh, towards sex. Um, for me, the 60s, and because I graduated from high school in 1980, so uh, the 60s and the 70s were not, I think some some parts of that were really good, cause for, you know, for like young women, it was a lot easier to access birth control or if you needed to have uh, an abortion or something, it was a lot more available uh, than it was, you know, than it is these days there's a lot more providers and, and stuff so that was another thing for women where it wasn't you know I, like you said just the overweening concern with pregnancy but uh you know so I, we grew up at this time and you know things were pretty free and easy it was the disco era punk was starting you know a lot of clubbing and stuff and so people were uh, a lot less uh you know, worried about sex. I mean, you know, you, you don't want to be like, you know, super promiscuous or slutty or whatever most people thought, but you know, it wasn't such a huge, awful thing. And then, you know, when age really started to get uh, so horrible and the, Ronald Reagan and his administration was just not even addressing the issue. Uh, Surgeon General Coop finally uh, basically ignored Reagan and, and came out and gave people some information. But, you know, it was really awful to see there's just a ton of people died and it was, just, you know, young people horribly. And, but after that, it was weird. Like in the nineties, I'd have like younger coworkers, you know, who'd be like in their early twenties and they were like very uh, kind of puritanical and kind of had this very kind of, a, you know, sex, you know, it was a real scary, awful thing, you know, cause at that point, you know, it could kill you. From oh, it was. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I'm a product of that. I mean, I graduated in 93. Yeah. And by yeah. the time I, but it was, it was not, I don't know that it was puritanical. It just, for the most part, you know, it was off the table because you're, yeah. you're, you were brought up through the eighties into the nineties being so scared of it. That although you wanted to do it and you, you know, and it was supposed to be this, this, you know, fantastic experience. Beautiful experience, so but never scared. do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. You're, you're so scared that you're going to, because by that point, you know, they had elevated STDs to the same level. And it was like those stories of people getting STDs and it was, you know, just, yeah, it was pure fear mongering. Yeah. So I, I can tell you what it was like in that part of it for sure. And it was not cool. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're exactly of that kind of generation of people that I was kind of, you know, I'd be like just more relaxed about it and that you could see there was this uptick, but like you're saying, it's just cause you were raised in this atmosphere and a lot of it was fear mongering, but then a lot of it, 
But then there was at the core, you know, an awful disease that killed a lot of people way too young. Yeah, Olaf, I, I was, I graduated a couple of years after you did, and yeah, it was the same, same kind of attitudes. Especially, I mean, especially in the south, it varied right? according to locale. Uh, my uh, second wife, uh, Lacey Rainbow, as she was known later, um, uh, told me that uh, she was. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A high school class of 1979, but out in the southern boondocks at Sprayberry High School and uh, in uh, Marietta, Georgia. Yeehaw! It's not suburban anymore. Atlanta ate Marietta a long time ago. Oh, but yeah, yeah. She said she was in the last class that, for lack of a better term, were hippies. Everybody after that, the, the underclassmen in her senior year were all straight-laced and, you know, I almost said Mormonized. But they, they were, <laughs> the point is, they were very straight-laced. And it carried over. There are bunches of people who are only a little younger than me, that uh, indulged in the, the fantasies of the flesh and drugs in the 1970s. And by the way, 1980 would be included. I mean, the 60s were not the 60s. It was 65 to 75. Yep. Because before 1965, there weren't no Beatles. There was screaming Lord Hutch such and... Uh, uh, as my father said, when my mother and I dragged him to the drive-in, I don't think this Elvis guy is anything anymore. My mother said, no, he's got a big career in Vegas. So it was Viva Las Vegas on the big screen at the Bolton drive-in, little local Americana. So um, where was I going with that? I'm back at the drive-in now. <laughs> and Margaret and Elvis doing the... You wouldn't know about that. Anyway, so many people who were disco ducks in the uh, in the seventies now deny the whole thing. They yeah. have lost their memory of that era, and you wouldn't know it unless you actually knew them then and know them now. They're, um, I mean, you know, the drug of choice was cocaine. Uh, it was an expensive drug, uh, unless uh, and. Uh, uh, the center of that in Atlanta was a place called the Limelight, which was also known affectionately as the Disco Kroger, because there was a Kroger right next door to this uh, nightclub with cocaine sweets uh, for the, uh, shall I call them the initiated? I didn't do any of that stuff, but I did hang out, you know, around that scene. 
And uh, none of those people remember it. I do. I remember who was there and who was rolling up those $100 bills on you top of their car in the parking lot. You and got I'm going to name names, and they're going to be very sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, now, Stephanie, uh, you, you and Alan, like what you were talking about, you're talking about a like, Project Archivist, Rogan show and all that. Yeah, Alan and I um, – well, it sounds very similar to uh, in many ways to what he was talking about in the in his book was just uh, we decided to he was very generous and decided to uh, share with us some of his own uh, personal experiences with sex magic. Um, we kind of had the first half where he was talking about kind of, you know, in a hierarchical initiate type organization um, and there was some manipulation and abuse and you know some of the kind of dark side which I think and I know Alan and I discussed this that people should be aware of just because if you're going to try and pursue some of these um, practices you want to protect yourself and uh, part of that is knowing about some of the skeeviness that can happen um, but then the latter half was really nice because he talked about uh uh, sex magic ritual that he and his uh, uh, girlfriend at the time devised together um, for the purpose of getting Alan a uh, more congenial job. <laughs> None of us are getting any younger and it was starting to, tear, to wear on him physically. So there was a job that he wanted to get uh, that would be like an office job, pay more money, that type of thing. And so they devised this whole kind of sex magical uh, ritual, uh, basically using a uh, holding out from orgasm for a long time to uh, uh, induce a trance state and uh, having this, uh, you know, you'd have a, Alan would be like the, the seer or the visionary. Um, you kind of uh, use this energy that's generated uh, through the priestess who, or, or his companion, who's also you know, going to be monitoring like his state of consciousness, um, his physical state and whatnot to kind of keep him in the zone where then you can uh, see real clear and see that future. That's you getting this great job <laughs> and it worked. So that was something that was really, um, you know, positive and creative and effective. And he had some strange experiences. You can go listen to it on a project archivist podcast in the, the archives there um, with Alan's, Alan's name, Alan Greenfield. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it was created a much more uh, equal kind of relationship between um, the participants and uh, everyone participating, deciding, okay, what are we going to try and do here? You know, setting out beforehand, I'm okay with this. I'm not okay with that. And I think that, you know, they've been together for a while and they had a lot of communication and trust between the two of them. So, yeah, I think that's essential too. I think that's something that kind of can get lost personally in uh, a lot of discussion of sex magic, which is, you're, you know, you're practicing either by yourself or like with someone else and who you practice with, I think, just choosing who you want to get involved with in that way. Same as with any other type of like magical or initiatory practice. Um, you know, you want to consider if this is the right person for you, if this is the right type of relationship to have. Um, I've been listening to Ben Jaffe a lot recently, who has studied uh, uh, sexual tantra in uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, lay householder practitioners, uh, Nakpas. Um but he was talking on this podcast called Guru Viking about um, the whole dynamic between trying to choose an appropriate partner to work with. And he talked about something that I thought was fun phenomenon. I never heard it before called Dakini refusal, which is when the guy, the llama or the monk or whatever, makes his play to some woman and says, hey, you want to do this sexual tantra together? And she's just like, 
I'm not feeling it. This is why <laughs> it just, you know, basically gets to say yes or no. And that's also a magical maneuver, right? Can be. Yeah. 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 I mean, all of these choices and uh, relationships that you can choose to cultivate or not to pursue, you know, these are, this is part of the whole process. So there's anyway. another, another thing too. And I think it has to do with, uh, thousands of years of sexual repression, but it's something that in the circle that I once uh, participated in, that club of shame. The club of infamy. <laughs> infamy. No, no, that would be is that the Japan same as, and Pearl that, Harbor. They really weren't into the Waikiki. Uh, I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Yes, the Ancient Order of Antiquity. It has many names, but one smuttiness and evil about it. However, we'll pass on that because the local body, the Euless Lodge Number 10 of the Incorporated, uh, uh, for a long time was pretty straight up and had, as a result of that, it had approximately a polarity balance, as it's known in those circles, between men and women because it didn't chase women off the way a lot of groups did, although Towards the end of that, Lacey Rainbow got uh, publicly shamed, but uh, by the <clears throat> then lodge master, whose name I won't uh, mention because he's still alive as far as I know, but uh, a lot of good things were accomplished as well. And other lodges, as I found out when I was uh, a sheriff, an inspector general, some of them had really, really bad problems with uh, uh, leaders, so-called, uh, uh, putting uh, pressure for sexual performance on their female members. And uh, that's why there were a lot fewer uh, female members and a lot of complaints. And uh, for all I know, it's still like that, although their numbers have much diminished from 3,500 to, I think it's just over 1,000 now. So there's a thing called, and I was introduced to this term by the Grand Poobah of that order, the Babylon Syndrome, which is sometimes women who participate in the structured sexual rights that have something to do with the uh, uh, offline, non-formal uh, but expected rituals in that organization. They'd go along, they'd be part of it, they would perform the priestess role in the uh, Liber 15 Gnostic Mass, which is now public domain, I believe, um, for those who might like to perform it. They would reach a certain point and then uh, to quote, I think it's Grace Slick, their mother's ghost stands at their shoulder and they completely disown it. And then it's the same thing as uh, disco amnesia. It's They want nothing further to do with it. And I don't blame them. I mean, the context is not supportive of women and especially of women's sexuality. As long as it's go along with the, uh, the doctrine and the ideas, uh, that's fine. But you get, a, get to a point where you have ideas of your own you get shut down. 
And that can be very traumatic because it's a lot harder for a woman to step into a circle that has a reputation for sex and drugs and no rock and roll uh, than it is for the guys who are there, which is why it's uh, basically a testosterone-fueled manifestation of the current, as they would put it. Does that make any sense at all? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that is true, and I think we need to uh, concentrate on that. Almost all of the stuff that I did that was experimental and, for the record, was done with a long-established partner. Not all of it. Some of it required that I go a field, but uh, almost all of it was done in the 70s and well into the 80s. And then I got informed in the back of uh, Gay Talese's book. What was it called? Uh, I forget. I remember that book, but I can't remember the the title of it. Well, it wasn't The Sexual Revolution is Over, but that's what it should have been, because it was that (laughs) year that he was talking about, well, my wife said it was okay for me to go to the massage parlor, blah, 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 blah. And that was really the beginning of the end of that era. And it was extended in groups like uh, the uh, Ancient Antiquities Abortion Order Incorporated, but not indefinitely extended. Uh, uh, Lacey and I moved down to Key West for a year, came back. And whereas, for example, when we were changing from street clothes to robes, Everybody undressed together and everybody got uh, their robes on to, together and there were certain things in the rituals which were involved, uh, not hardcore sexuality, but uh, certainly nudity and some underlying sexual uh, issues. And uh, it just wasn't true anymore. Everybody stepped into the... Uh, bathroom to uh, to change and it was uh, the resurgence of why are you wearing those fig leaves well god you see this serpent no fuck the serpent why are you wearing clothes did i ever tell you to wear clothes well lord no uh get out of my fucking garden well it's not your fucking garden anymore lord you people are disgusting Flood, flood. Okay, that's Genesis, my version. Uh, I learned that in ancient Babylon a few years ago. Well, that too. Okay, I'm done. Some of the sex magic, did you get results from this? Like what you asked for to happen, did you get results? There are two kinds of magic. One is more like meditation in its function than it is uh, trying to get something. That would be called low magic. Go down to the local voodoo store, get yourself a candle, a green candle, anoint it with money drawing oil, and your mother will call and have $900 for you that you didn't ask for. That actually was an occurrence that I remember well because it was a death benefit for my father, and he'd been gone like eight years at the time. My mother called, oh, we just got a $900, and we were poor. We were very poor down down in the Keys. Um, the Keys will do that to you, because if you were rich when you got there, you weren't when you left. That's sort of like Vegas. But um, 
there's some point in that, but I'm old and I get forgetful. You were saying lower lower magic uh, strictly for wants and desires versus higher magic, which is for higher ideals, I guess, and achieving... Yeah. For attainment and the knowledge and conversation of your holy guardian angel, which is well depicted in the movie uh, A Dark Song, which surprised the hell out of me. I mean, that's that's the real deal. It's abbreviated. You really have to go on for like nine months to do the Abramelin ritual. Mostly people get tired of it somewhere a month into it because we don't live in the times before television, radio, and the internet. So uh, people did more to amuse themselves back then than they, uh, than they're willing to do now for the most part. But yeah, my major interest was in attainment and attainment both of my uh, so-called HGA, but also communion with the uh, inner order, uh, which is uh, the equivalent of the, uh, the nine unknown in India or the, uh, the Lamed Vavniks in Orthodox Judaism, or more like Hasidic Judaism, uh, and uh, other variations of the secret chiefs of the Third Order, which are uh, people who have attained and who don't go on to, uh, they call it in Buddhism, uh, to, to a Buddha state, but choose to remain uh Bodhisattvas, that is, people who are capable of attaining, but who choose to help everyone who's left behind to attain before they are willing to go on to Buddhahood. Translated into Western terms, that means uh, once you have reached a point of attainment, you don't cross the great abyss, you help others across. And uh, that's kind of my approach to things. But when I was 40 and working in that warehouse 110 degrees with people that were 20 you know i began to feel that i needed a different position in the company so lacy who i was married to at the time by the way um we weren't just uh partners we were uh, official official yeah or what passed for official in those days <laughs> and uh um so I devised this uh, ritual with her called uh, Scrying in the Flesh. And one of the major purposes of it was to a very unlikely thing. I was working in the warehouse of a major art supply company. I knew nothing about art supplies, but I did know how to uh, fetch orders and package them. So that's what I was doing on top of ladders, carrying two 50-pound boxes. It's very lucky that I had, uh, between marriages, stayed with my mother and had a free membership in the European health spa downstairs, or I would have died on that job for sure, fallen off a ladder or just dropped dead from the heat. But uh, I had great incentive to move up in the company, even though I knew nothing about what they were doing. I don't know art from Bubkiss. I know what I like, but I don't know how to do any of that stuff. So the ritual involved uh, getting very, very stoned. I didn't get stoned. So that was like quadruple stoned for the ritual because I, had, uh, I didn't even use it uh, magically. So I was stoned, she was stoned, and we did a well, you can read it in the book exactly what we did, but it was called Scrying in the Flesh. And uh, I would reach a point where I was visualizing 
my boss and he was saying to me, you're hired at $50,000 a year, which was a lot of money back then. Uh, well, it's still a lot of money by my standards, but it's, uh, it would be more like 150 at this point. And his son, one of the owners of the company, I'm sitting at 6.30 at night waiting for the bus to take me home with my back aching, sitting on the ground, and the boss's son drives by me in his Lincoln, and he stops Cole, leans out the window and says, hey, Alan, how would you like to be a purchasing agent? And not particularly helpful, and not partic- I said, uh, what is a purchasing agent? And he said, uh, that's someone who buys the stuff that we sell for the company. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. Uh, my father's company had a buyer, but he was in the shoe business, fourth generation. So shoe business is not art supplies, I think. He said, business is business. It doesn't matter. I'm getting the inflection right there, too. You will move up to being a purchasing agent. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And this guy who was, they had brought him in to fire all the dead wood. I'm up on a ladder again, carrying two big boxes under my arms. And he said, so I hear you are a Kohen, which is the hereditary priesthood in Judaism. And I said, uh, maybe what, what's the beef? Because <laughs> I thought he was going to fire me. He said, no, I, uh, we're, uh, we're part of a group of people that want to rebuild the third temple on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I said, uh... Wouldn't that cause some difficulties with the 400 million Arabs that consider that to be a holy site as well? He said, nah, business is business. Well, he didn't say business is business. He said, religion is religion. It doesn't matter. Um, if you want the job, it's yours. I said, uh, what job is that? Purchasing agent. I said, bingo. Do I get to go downstairs and wear clothes and everything? You know. But uh, sure enough, I got hired for that and it went on to be that uh, their rival came to town and they hired me as their manager of the largest uh, um, art supply company in the country at that time and uh, I still don't know shit about art supplies but the point is the magic worked yeah nice that's nice well what are some other um forms or methods of sex magic that uh, you talk about in this book, The Grail Within? Well, I, I have left for for people to read the book because yes. I'm no fool, no serene. I want to live to be 103. Uh, that's from the Mouseketeers, actually. But um, I didn't tell you everything about that particular process because it does involve uh, slow... ESO, what was then known in a very popular 70s book called Extended Sexual Orgasm. And that uh, was incorporated into the rituals so as enriched the visionary experience. There were others too. I wound up uh, under the tutelage of a uh, shaman somewhere in the jungle of, uh, well, probably in Brazil, but that's a meaningless term out in the Amazon jungle, you know. We're not talking about the Jeff Bezos Amazon. We're talking about the real Amazon. Uh, He can just fly off into space as far as I'm concerned. But um, 
Oh, he will. A couple of days. Um, yeah, Richard Branson beat him to it. So. Yeah, that's uh, well. He beat him in a space plane. We'll see. I think the future is in rocketry. But uh, and I keep singing the songs from the Jefferson Starship about stealing a starship. But don't don't quote me on that. This is just a secret between you and me, the audience, and the people in Saint Petersburg, Russia, that are probably listening in even as we speak. And I don't mean when we're taping. I mean when we're taping, not when it's actually out there in podcast land. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, yes. So there were other instances, and they are described in the, in the book, some of them. One was a, my stumbling upon a uh, oriental sex magic cult. I think that's a fair. When I was uh, in grad school, postgraduate studies at the University of Arizona, there was one good rock and roll club in, uh, in Tucson. And right next door in the basement of the place next door, I found this oriental sex magic cult. And really, I was only a witness there, you know, but uh, they let me come in and see their priestess do a very similar thing to the scrying in the flesh thing. And uh, she started uh, saying things to me personally. It was sort of like mediumship, and I had never had any contact with them before. They didn't know me from Adam. And uh, nevertheless, they, uh, she nailed it even while she was having an orgasm. It was uh, an interesting experience. Uh, years later, I saw that uh, Kenneth Grant has, had encountered in London a, uh, this, a similar or the same cult, which seems to be more out of uh, the Chinese Tong tradition than, than out of uh, anything more recent in China. So it's probably an expat tradition or out of uh, Taiwan rather than out of the brainwashed mainland China of today. So, I mean, there's more and the how-tos are in there, but... Uh, Get the book, because formerly you couldn't get the book. What you would get is the books about the theoretical aspects, and right. I wanted to bring it home. Yeah, it's a lot more down-to-earth um, and uh, less veiled than where you're going to find uh, similar material, for sure. And it keeps that, that notation in it that about the 20-year golden period, because we ain't in that golden period now, and a certain amount of... Uh, prudent precaution is not prudish precaution at this point so um, I hope that that has some influence and that it helps people to learn how the hows and whys and what's of sexual magic I don't think anybody has seen anything exactly like it um, uh, even even some of the stuff that Crowley did a century ago so, and also he was very exploitative of both men and women that he had uh, relations with. That is wrong and it carries karma with it that will uh, have the rebound that karma does. Karma is always negative, so it means work. And the idea is to undo, not to do. So, 
something to be said for that. I'm not a big fan of Eastern uh, versions of this stuff, but I think there are points at which it, it has great wisdom, and that is the case. Well, Alan, we're looking forward to having you here in Nashville in October. I'm looking forward to it, too. I, I don't know how I'm going to get my my uh, stroller or walker or whatever. Roller, roller, yeah. Sounds like when you take ecstasy, which I haven't done, and you're rolling in a roller. So maybe I'll be done with that by then uh, and just have a cane. Uh, or something but uh, either way they have they have a ramp at the facilities and you will be accommodated I'm uh, doing the uh, Indian blessing East Indian blessing hands raised as if in a prayer posture from (laughs) excellent yeah don't worry about that we'll we'll make sure uh, make sure it's taken care maybe if I lose a few more pounds you can carry me Olive well, I can carry you now. Don't worry about it. Olaf is a he's a lumberjack. He can yeah he can carry. It'll it'll be like Gezaquatl. He sleeps all okay. day. I'm I'm just fine. Yes. <laughs> any idea uh, what you might be talking about? No, it's like this program or any other program that I do. I don't like to know what they're about in advance. I get up, I see the people, or I imagine that I see the people, and I. I uh, channel. Well, there is something that I've been wanting to talk to you about, Alan. If you're if you're comfortable with it, um, you talk a lot about the secret chiefs of the third order and the um, you know I guess what would be called the White Lodge or beings who are trying to help humanity and help individuals. But what about the the other side and the Black Lodge and these uh, forces that a lot of really dark people have aligned themselves to, and in particular, the speculations about uh, the fascists. Can you elaborate on that at all? Some of that is mythic, uh, but mm-hmm. the Black Lodge is a real thing. I mean, there's this whole thing about the Nazis and UFOs and UFO beings and the uh, the Vril Society and uh, the women of the Vril, which is sort of like the women of Palm Beach or something in <laughs> one of those magazines or something. Um, it, they don't exist. As far as I know, they never have existed, but there's a neo-Nazi group in Germany. And in Germany, they have to be careful because Nazism is illegal in Germany. I think they looked at the crumbling ruins of their civilization and, so to speak, uh, had a uh, come-to-Jesus moment. And they, uh, in the case of the current uh, chancellor, a literal come-to-Jesus moment. And they, uh, uh, so that stuff has to be under a layer or two of uh, mythos. And... uh, Unfortunately, there is a large group of people, heaven knows, I did an episode of, uh, what was it called? UFO Nonsense. No, that wasn't what it was called. Ancient Aliens? uh, No, no. Before Ancient Aliens, UFO Hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where they implied that I was on a Lufthansa jet to Germany to see the Glock, the Bell. Oh, no. And it's just, it was, uh, I've never been in Germany. It was not a Lufthansa jet, and I wasn't on a jet. I was at space camp 
where they were interviewing me about Nazi UFOs. And I said what I regard as the truth, which is they seem to have hit on the idea, as indeed the United States did later, of uh, circular aircraft having uh, an ideal aeroform. But they had no idea how to power these things. And my suggestion is the real McCoy comes from other planes of existence, not other planets as such, and uh, that they are powered by something equivalent to orgon energy, which gets us back to sexual magic. Mm-hmm. And they never had a clue about that. So you've seen pictures of these UFO-shaped things with propellers on them that were, uh, as far as I know, they never flew. And the Nazis put their last energies into uh, jet aircraft and V-2 rockets, not into flying saucers. But uh, the real society was a real society. I don't know that they had any female members. They brought in a medium to their meetings, and the medium would contact the uh, very much like uh, trans channelers more recently. They'd contact the aliens, whatever the aliens were, ancient or otherwise, and uh, and uh, speak in tongues or something or other like that. But in terms of that that having a great significance in the history of uh, ufology, I pretty much doubt anything that has been on the History Channel since they stopped running uh, documentary films on World War II. When they ran out of those, in came the uh, flying saucers and the ghost hunters and the hunt hunters, you know. The, the usual gang of idiots, as they used to say in Mad Magazine. But beyond the UFO phenomenon, um, you do believe in the existence of... I don't believe in it. I know that the Black Lodge exists. I've had a couple of encounters with their agents. And what they what, the, the essence of what I got out of that was if they want to eliminate me, they can. They eliminated a number of my good friends that were a little too close to the subject matter. Jim Keith, uh, he broke his leg at Burning Man, and then he was dead. Uh, the pub, my first publisher, the the one that gave me a real break, uh, was uh, Ron Bonds at uh, Illuminate Press. Before that, Illuminate BBS. Uh, if anyone knows what a BBS was. Um, he and his wife went out to dinner at a local Mexican restaurant. Uh, he supposedly had food poisoning and was dead before dawn. Now, nobody else, including his wife, got sick that was there. And the likelihood that that was explainable uh, in terms of food poisoning is practically zero. Now, they got him. And that effectively closed down. Uh, Illuminate Press. So those of us who were, uh, you know, that was our big break in the uh, moving from being a obscure writer to a published writer uh, uh, and therefore author, which is an important distinction in these circles. Uh, it it uh, was a major loss. And uh, of course, uh, there are varied accounts of what happened to our brilliant street person, uh, Carrie Thornley, who I managed to interview at great length uh, 
shortly before he uh, died at 48, 50. Uh, they, they, all of these people died prematurely. And the message to me was uh, this this guy showed up at Euless Lodge and he was he looked exactly like Charles Manson when arrested. OK, which did not endear him to me since Manson had a brief uh, sojourn in the solar lodge, uh, which uh, mm-hmm. uh, was an unfortunate uh, either lodge of the ancient order of antiquity or according is that seven uh eastern time that you missed it okay uh olaf before you go just tell everybody uh, uh where they can find you and all that good stuff sure sure so i'm actually teaching class that's why i have to uh, drop off on tuesdays at 7 p.m pacific on clubhouse uh, i teach a class coming uh, from the monarch center on occultism and Fortianness. Um, you can find me at the Celestial Lodge of Sirius.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and Paranoia Mags, uh, ParanoiaMagazine.com, Facebook, Olaf Phillips. I'm easy to find. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And thank you so much, Olaf, for helping us out in October. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm really excited about it. And um, <clears throat> I think there's going to be some high weirdness, and I can't wait to be involved because I'm a 14 through and through. So There's going to absolutely be high weirdness, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, brother. Thank you for doing this. Later, Bye. Olaf. Bye-bye. Bye. You will send Stephanie a copy of the book. The book. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we were talking about the Black Lodge. You were talking about... Uh... Okay, so this guy shows up and he he fits the profile and he looked like he was spending a lot of time with some of our people and some people from the Lodge in New Orleans that have, happened to be visiting. And I said to myself, I said, uh, this guy's Black Lodge. I can feel it in my bones. So I'm going to hoodoo him. So... I started saying things to him, such as I am prone to say to people that are undeserving of breathing my air. So uh, I, I finally, I got him, as he got into his Volkswagen van or whatever it was, I said, uh, you know, you've been talking a lot about the harmonic convergence or whichever doomsday scenario was then the in uh, doomsday <laughs> scenario. And I said, uh, well, you know, April, I made up a day, April 23rd, 1994. Remember that day, because it's going to be a big event in your life. And I saw him, you know, closing his door. And then he got what I wanted, the funny look on his face, like, does this guy know something that I don't know? And so I didn't, the unasked question, I went, that's right, I do. As if I had read his mind. I worked for Psychic Friends for five years. You know, you get a call from a woman in the middle of the night and you either hear uh, disco music, in which case she's a stripper, or you hear boom, boom, in which case she's a nurse. And you don't have to be psychic to say, so I hear you're in the healthcare profession. (laughs) How did you know that? It's a gift from God, lady. Did somebody fall out of their chair? I've always wanted to make somebody fall out of their chair. Okay. So, 
uh, this guy was, to the extent that he could be, freaked. And I was satisfied that I had done a good deed for the, uh, what used to be called the Great White Brotherhood, although that sounds too much like the Klan, so I, I've taken to using uh, other terms like uh, secret chiefs and uh, what do the theosophists call them? Same people. The Ascended Masters. Yes. Yeah. The Ascended Master. <laughs> I'm an Ascended Master. You're an Ascended Master. All God's children so, are Ascended Masters. Um, so I'm not done. The sequel okay. was um, the local group of the ancient antiquated order uh, decided to go to the uh, – the spiral gathering, I think it was called back then. That was the neo-pagan gathering that, although not a neo-pagan, I had a great deal to do with uh, creating, uh, not realizing that I was putting a bug in the ear of one of the founders of it. We need to have an outdoor festival in Georgia for all of the people that are into all this groovy stuff. That'll date it right there. Um, so we went out there, and aside from, uh, What's his name? The head of the golden fraud. I mean, Dawn, Dawn, Golden Dawn. Uh, not the Greek fascist group, just the uh, anyway. So um, he was he was telling Lacey, oh, have you gone through the star sapphire ritual there? You know, that's a that's going to be hard for you to do. And I said, uh, I don't think anywhere in the ritualarium of this group there is uh any such ritual, but maybe he knows something that I don't know, but probably not. He's BSing you. So um, two or three days in, we were bunked together in this bunkhouse, bunky, and uh, that same guy that I had put the hoodoo on is there and sponsoring a contest to clean up Arabia Mountain, my power spot, and not very common knowledge. I mean, Mount Arabia, people that lived in, in the adjacent towns didn't know it existed. And you'd have to go out there to see why that is the case. It basically, uh, centuries of silt coming off of the mountain has caused it to have a ring of trees around it, which are much bigger than the view you would have. So there are lots of people who don't even know it's there. I only knew it was there because my sixth grade class took a field trip because there is flora and fauna out there that uh, exists nowhere else in the known universe. Um, so he wants to clean up Arabia Mountain and is having a drawing for a naked slave to come to the lucky winner to help him clean up Mount Arabia. So I put in my $5 or whatever it was, and everybody else there, there was like three or 400 people. And I thought, well, this is the acid test. Uh, if this guy is what I think he is, I win the contest, even though it's supposedly a blind drawing out of several hundred people. And I did. I won the contest, and the uh, – supposed slave, actually a member of a upstate New York uh, sex magic group, showed up at the door of Naked as a Jaybird uh, 
for serving breakfast. I gave it all to the other members of the lodge because it was not my deal. And I really didn't want to have truck with the Black Lodge. Uh, and I went and I thought, well, this guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him on it. I'm going to say, you're Black Lodge, aren't you? And I found him at the dining hall a few hours later, convinced that I was going to have another good confrontation with him. And he reaches out his hand and reflexively, I went to shake his hand and I felt a needle against my palm. Didn't penetrate it. I took my hand away and he had a needle on a ring turned inward. And he goes, yeah, buddy. I mean, he didn't talk with Southern accent. He had a, I thought, well, he just gave me the message and he doesn't have to say it outright. If he wanted to kill me, now would have been the time or whenever the time release little uh, medicine uh, took effect, poor Alan would keel over in the mess hall and that would have been the end of me. And I was chastened by that. Uh, but if you want to ask about the Black Lodge, you need to get in touch with uh, David Lynch, who clearly has had his own extensive contacts that pale mine uh, by comparison. <laughs> um, relating to that a little bit, um, do you think that that fascists and really extreme right wing elements were trying to make inroads into the UFO world and and Fortiana in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, but the, I don't know that it's inroads or resurgence. The, uh, the New Age movement started in the 1930s with a guy named William Pelly, who was, uh, as Nazism seized control of the Gestalt in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, was an American. Uh, now, you can't uh, mix that up with uh, the... Uh, uh, what was called the German-American Bund, because that was made up of uh, German-Americans, uh, mostly people that were actually born in Germany. And uh, with the Führer, they were simpatico. Uh, if you've ever seen pictures of their uh, unlikely venue at Madison Square Garden in New York, why they didn't get torn to pieces, I don't know. New York is not known as a particularly Nazi-friendly uh, place, but uh, at the same time, a group of uh, nativist Americans, sound familiar from more recent experience, mm -hmm. uh, formed the Silver Shirts, and that's, you know, that was their uniform, and they, they were spread pretty thinly across the country. I have a personal anecdote that I will just touch on, but my father and the local rabbi at that time in Augusta, Georgia, decided to infiltrate that group in sometime in the 1930s at some risks themselves, and they did. Uh, there was nothing, you know, they had meetings, they talked about the Jews replacing them and whatever the version of that was back then. But the head of that group was William Dudley Pelly. After America entered the war, he was put in prison because it wasn't good to be a Nazi at that time. Um, uh, in this country, anyway. Um, but um, Pelly then shifted gears when he got out of the slammer and was doing what amounts to New Age stuff. It spun off the uh, whole, uh, uh, what do they call that outfit that uh, thinks Mount Shasta is? The I.M.? Yeah, I.M., 
which is a bad, bad, bad translation of Ahiyah, Asher Ahiyah, which is more like... Talk about Guy Ballard's group. Yeah, Guy Ballard was. And a member of Guy Ballard's group was uh, George Hunt Williamson, who was uh, the author of many early UFO books and one of George Adamski's chief witnesses. I never met Adamski, but I was informed by Jim Mosley, who was had a, a hard on against Adamski, really, 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 really bad. Uh, he told me that Adamski was a notorious anti-Semite, so that was not part of his UFO, uh, you know, phase four thing. But basically, if you if you scratched some of the people at Giant Rock, the first flying saucer convention, you would have found lots of neo-fascists because it all came out of that uh, third-gen uh, Pelly circle, and I, mm-hmm. I don't, and I am, and all of that. I think the Integratron is a real thing. It really is. It works, but that doesn't mean that the people at the V2 worked. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a Nazi rocket, you know. So, um, uh, Giant Rock was a collection of all kinds of people. But out of it came what today is thought of as the entire New Age movement. Only it's gotten a lot more expensive to do anything from it. And uh, it's not my trip. Uh, I think that's a good place to close the show. Uh, I want to thank you both for being on. Uh, Stephanie, please tell everybody where they can find you, your your blog, and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, let's see. My blog is uh, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. It's stephaniequick.home.blog. And um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you go on my uh, kind of, I think, contact page, I have those links in there if you're interested in, in finding out. Okay. And Alan... People can find the, the newly resurrected Alan Greenfield. They can find me, but they can't uh, find me. That's right. <laughs> they can find my stuff, though, by Googling my name, because I've been on the Internet since it was the ARPANET. So you will find gazillions of entries under my name, some of which actually have a, a whiff of truth about them, most of which do not. But they, they're still worth, uh, you know, taking a look at. And, of course, if you contact... Uh, my current publisher, the Honorable, the Right Honorable and Initiated uh, Lodge of, what does he call it? Uh, the Lodge of the Illuminated... Uh, Celestial Lodge of Sirius. Yeah, is that like Celestial Seasonings? Tea? It doesn't matter. It's good stuff because it was uh, 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 chartered by a great initiate who I have a close relationship with in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a variety of publishers over the years, and some give you know due respect to the authors, and some take the money and run. And uh, one of them is literally on the run, so <laughs> it's uh, two of them actually. Uh, with uh, it's very easy now to get copies of almost all of my books, including one I didn't write. There's a book on witchcraft out there with my name on it. I didn't write it. It's, it pulled some stuff from my old website, but, you know, I, I, I saw an edition of it from Canada, and then there are a bunch of editions, and I think uh, it's out there, and I'm not anything that, you know, is 
something that I actually experienced. Ask me about it, and I'll be glad to talk about it. But uh, I didn't write a book on that subject, and uh, the, the rest of them, they're all mine, you know. And I would really encourage everyone to, to get a copy of The Grail Within if you're interested, um, because it, it brings much clarity to the subject. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hope so. And let, let me just say one thing that I did not get into, because it's a whole subject in and of itself. But I do believe that uh, the Newkirks and company uh, in season two of Hellier, and who knows what the future will bring, uh, they found what amounts to the grail in uh uh, mine or, or a cavern that was connected to a mine and they didn't recognize it because they expect this splendid chalice and you have to ask yourself what a first century Jewish carpenter would be drinking out of and there you have it and for some reason these people who are great field researchers they left it there and by miraculous uh, uh, coincidence or whatever it was still there when they went back realizing, ah, we should have had a V8 or we should have picked up the grail. So I, I got back to them and showed them actual first century uh, grails made of the same substance, tin, which is what sent Joseph of Arimathea to England. He was a right. tradesman and he went to Glastonbury and that just above Glastonbury was where the most ancient tin mines in the world were located. So... Uh, there's a definite connection there. Tried to show it to them, and they'll do with it as they will. That'll be the whole of their next synchronicity, if they but listen to the old man, the old man and his dog. Oof. <laughs> All right, cool. And Alan, you're going to be here with us in Nashville in October, and we're looking forward to that. In the uh, flesh, barring in, the unforeseen. In the flesh, yes. And... Uh, Guys, tickets are available for Strange Realities. It is $70. Come here to Nashville, spend three days with us and with Alan Greenfield and the rest of the crew. And it is $30 if you want to watch online. So we have those options available. And uh, we also... It's going to be amazing. Yes, it will be amazing. You will see... You're going to see some shit, that's for sure. And uh, also, if you guys want to support the show, we have our Patreon, uh, and Turfiel can tell you where to find that. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal and join one of our many tiered orders for $5 a month. You get a new episode every week exclusive for our patrons. For the $10 level, we have our hangout with the Mystic Crew every month in which uh, you guys get a preview of some scholarship and presentations uh, not yet released to the public. Of Uh, which I will be doing the next one. Yes. By the time this is out, so... Then at the $20 level, you can join the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities, get a exclusive t-shirt, and a experience at the Strange Realities Conference. All right, guys, that's it. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Alan Greenfield, Stephanie Quick, and Olaf Phillips. And we will talk to you next time on Conspiranormal.
would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.